Well, thank you for the songs this morning. We'll be going to Matthew chapter 3. So we are in a study of the Gospel of Matthew. This is message number five in our series in Matthew. The title of this message is By Water and Word. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Don Quixote, Jamestown, Johannes Kepler, Galileo Galilei, the discovery of the transcendental functions known as logarithms, the death of William Shakespeare, the pilgrim's arrival in Plymouth, Massachusetts, the construction of the Taj Mahal. So what do all the items on that list have in common? Well, the people and the events that I have just mentioned lived and or occurred around about 400 years ago. So these people and events are as far away from us today as the completion of the Old Testament was from the people of Israel in the first century. And so Matthew began his account with the people and the events that broke that 400 years of silence from Malachi to Matthew. So after four centuries of silence from heaven, a prophet emerged from the wilderness of Judea, dressed like a prophet of old, the prophet Elijah, in fact, who had prophesied in Israel around 900 years before John the Baptist did. John the baptizer, or the immerser, of the tribe of Levi, he commanded Israel to repent and to be immersed in water because the kingdom was near and the long-awaited Messiah was coming. John was sent by God with a mission to prepare Israel to receive the Messiah and his kingdom. John made it clear they were not ready, and they needed to get ready by repentance, confession of sins, being baptized in water to show their cleansing and consecration to God and his Messiah. Now, John's message and his methods had roots in the Old Testament, but they weren't simply repetitions of what the nation of Israel had seen before but neither were they entirely new and different. 
the fulfillment of the Old Covenant and the inauguration of the New Covenant were at hand, and Israel needed to submit to God's Word and receive their Savior and King. Well, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He rebuked Israel for their sins, and he introduced the long-awaited Messiah. So he came to the Jordan River preaching and baptizing or immersing, as Matthew tells us. And John's baptism was for cleansing, for consecration. It was for confession. It was for repentance and expectation to make the people of Israel ready for their Messiah and his kingdom. Well, the arrival of John was a part of breaking that 400 years of silence. And Matthew adds to that the second part of breaking that silence, the part, in fact, that fully broke the silence because God was heard from heaven and confirmed the Son of God come to the earth. Now, large groups of Jews have gone out to John to be baptized by him, even some of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and some of these John turned away until they produced fruits of repentance. And so Matthew tells of how Jesus came to be baptized by John, though obviously not because of repentance. Now, the account here is brief, but it is filled with significance. And so there are two parts of this event. First, in verses 13 to 15, where John baptized Jesus. And then in verses 16 to 17, where God the Father spoke from heaven. So we're going to look at the beginning with this first part where John baptized Jesus, beginning with verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. Now Matthew had previously introduced the ministry of John the Baptist, and now he's telling about Jesus coming to John after that John began his ministry. So from all accounts, we know that Jesus had not performed any miracles to this point. Jesus had not engaged in any, mir- in any ministry prior to this point. Presumably, Jesus was still living in Nazareth at the time, and so he would have journeyed to the Jordan River near to um, the Dead Sea where John was baptizing, and this would have been a journey somewhere around about 80 miles, depending on the particular route that he would have chosen to walk. And it would have taken Jesus nearly two weeks round trip if he walked directly there and then walked directly back home after the baptism. So Matthew tells us that Jesus being being baptized by John was the purpose for the journey. Notice that it says, he, that then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. That was the reason that Jesus went there. So it was a deliberate act, and it was a significant act, and Jesus went there for that purpose. Now verse number 14. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Okay, so the next couple of verses, verses 14 and 15, are verses that have been we could say um, somewhat puzzling historically um, for interpreters. And this exchange between John and Jesus 
has raised a lot of questions um, throughout history in the last 2,000 years, uh, probably raised many more questions than it has actually answered. And when you look at the commentaries, there's just a wide variety of explanations for what John says and what Jesus says and what's going on here and what's the purpose of it all, um, a lot of different ideas. Well, let's, let's just start looking at and, and look at this in its context. Let's just start looking at this. That, that John forbade him is the first thing that we're told. Uh, not really a, a word that we use in that form anymore. But this word that is used in this form only appears here, but the root of this word is used frequently in the New Testament, and it is usually translated with some form of forbid. Um, the word has the idea of hindering or preventing something or someone in some way. And so what is being expressed is that Jesus came, he came all that way, to be baptized by John, and John tried to prevent it. John tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized. That's, the, that's what the saying means. Now, John gives his reason. As he goes on to explain, he says, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me. So John's reason that he gives is that he himself needed to be baptized by Jesus and not the other way around. Now, John had already acknowledged that the Messiah coming after him was greater than him. And we read uh, that passage uh, in the last message up in the earlier part of the chapter. The one who's coming after him, John says, is, is greater than, than me. Uh, there are several instances where we have uh, the, the disciples of John that would come to him and tell him about Jesus gathering a, a larger following, and, and they were somewhat upset about that. And, and, and John said, a man can receive nothing except what's given him from heaven. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. So John was never one that, that wanted to upstage Jesus or had any problem at all with, with Jesus being exalted. That was, that was John's purpose in life, in fact. So he had no trouble with that. So it is true that John had acknowledged that the Messiah that was coming after him was greater than him. In fact, John said he wasn't worthy to bear his sandals. So John certainly recognized that Jesus was superior to him, but it seems like there's more than that at play in what John is saying. It's not just that, that John is expressing humility. There seems to be something more as we read this entire account. Well, if we think about the situation. John and Jesus were both around 30 years old at this time. We know that John was about six months older than Jesus, and we know that Jesus was around 30 years old at the time. Now, we can arrive at that in different ways. One of the ways that we can arrive at that age is to work with the genealogies, and um, we can calculate the time, and, and we can sort of arrive at, at those figures. Another way that we can arrive at that time is to work uh, chronologically with the events and the, the names and things that we know and things we know from history as, as well as in the Bible. We have certain time markers um, that, that we can, you know, such as the reign of certain kings and what have you. And there's various ways that we can calculate and we can arrive at that. But if math makes you nervous, there's another way that we can arrive at that. We can turn over to Luke chapter Three in verse 23 and read the direct statement by Luke where he says that about this that Jesus at this time was about 30 years old and so we know that Jesus was about 30 years old at this time and so John would have been well what what would be the significance of 
their age. Why, John is beginning ministry at about 30 years of age. Jesus is beginning ministry at about 30 years of age, just sort of behind John just a little bit. What would be the significance of that and the starting of ministry at that particular point rather than earlier or even later? Well, one idea is that from the, the biblical and the historical accounts um, Joseph had died sometime before this. Remember how that in Matthew's gospel, uh, in, in chapter 1, we have this genealogy, we have this birth of Christ. In chapter 2, we have this infancy scene that could have been, would have only have been up to two years old for Jesus at, at most. And then we start in, in chapter 3, and John the Baptist comes from the wilderness to the region of Jordan, um, preaching and baptizing. So there's about a 30-year skip ahead that Matthew does once he hits chapter number 3. Well, from, the, from the, what we know, Joseph had died sometime before this. Joseph was the adoptive father of Jesus, you recall. He, he was not alive at, at this time. And so because of that, Jesus being the eldest son of the family, the burden for providing for his mother would have, would have fallen on him as the eldest son. And so by the time that Jesus reaches around 30 years of age, then his younger brothers would have been old enough to have been able to have taken on that responsibility. And there could be something to that, or at least that certainly coincides um, somewhat nicely with the timing of it all. But on the other hand, if we think about John, John being about 30 years old, John being from the tribe of Levi, John being of the family of Aaron, This would have been the time for him to go into Jerusalem, to be vetted by the Sanhedrin, and to be consecrated to priestly service just like his father before him. And the fact that John had not done this was certainly something of a sticking point uh, that comes up with the Pharisees and Sadducees later. But the consecration for priestly service included the washing of immersion. And one place you can see that is like on the Day of Atonement, how that the priest um, had to wash his body, had to immerse himself. That's Leviticus chapter 16 and verse number 4. That occurred annually. Of course, and before priests were even put into the office to begin with, they had to be so consecrated. Well, John had never submitted to any of that. John had been out in, in the wilderness preparing for the the ministry as a prophet that God had sent him to do. So John's attempt to prevent the baptism of Jesus acknowledges that he had not been baptized to be set apart for God in ministry. And so it seemed inappropriate that he would perform that function for Jesus. Well, Jesus responds in verse 15, And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. So Jesus responded to John, and he told John to allow it, because it was fitting that they would do what righteousness required. And that's the sense of what Jesus said. It's it's fitting for us. It's appropriate for us. Maybe even more strongly, we could say it's incumbent upon us that, that we do everything that righteousness requires 
of us to do. And you notice that pronoun enter that Jesus used. Jesus said us. It's appropriate for us to do everything that righteousness requires. So both he and John would be fulfilling righteousness by immersing Jesus in the Jordan River. Now, just think about that phrase for a moment, fulfilling all righteousness. Fulfilling the requirements of righteousness is something that sounds very old covenant, very old covenant law. And it certainly has roots there. But as we see here, and as we go on into the New Testament, that this extends into the New Covenant as well. Jesus was baptized, or he was immersed in the Jordan River to be consecrated or set apart to God for the ministry of the New Covenant priesthood to which he was chosen. He was not of the Levitical or the Aaronic Old Covenant priesthood, but rather Jesus was a New Covenant priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you read about that in Psalm 110 that we looked at not too awful long ago. You could read about that in Hebrews, particularly in chapters 6 through 8, where the priesthood of Jesus is described. Jesus was not an Old Covenant priest. He is the New Covenant priest priest. So it would be later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, that immersion would be invested with the symbol of death and resurrection. But Jesus' baptism was an immersion of consecration, showing his full subjection to his Father as entirely set apart to him. And that comes out very clearly in what happens next. And here is where the Father speaks from heaven, beginning with verse number 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Now, the word straightway that you see there is is a word that means immediately. Um, It's a word that's actually much more common in Mark. Uh, It's one of the features, in fact, of, of, of Mark's gospel and the way that he uh, wrote that and put that together. But the, the word means immediately. So Matthew is adding here that after that Jesus was immersed in the Jordan River, when he had come up out of the water, so in other words, this happened immediately. The point that Matthew's making is that this wasn't something that happened sometime later. It wasn't something that happened in some other context, this is directly connected to what John and Jesus had just done in the Jordan River, immersing Jesus in the water, and immediately when he had come up out of the water, these things began to happen because they are connected. So Matthew lets us know that by saying straightway. For instance, if you look back at the earlier uh, verse we started with there in verse number 13, he just says, then cometh Jesus from Galilee. Well, he was just talking about how that John was baptizing in the Jordan River. And he says, then cometh Jesus from Galilee. Well, the way that that Matthew expresses this, that didn't happen immediately. So it wasn't the same day, for instance, that Matthew was talking about earlier in chapter 3 that John was baptizing. But here, he is emphasizing that it was immediately. It was at the same time. 
Jesus was baptized, and then the heavens were opened, and so on. Now, Matthew uses language here that is reminiscent of an Old Testament prophet receiving revelation from God. He speaks about the heavens being opened, uh, seeing a a vision or or seeing the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Verse 17, a voice from heaven speaks. So he, he uses this language that's very reminiscent of an Old Testament prophet receiving revelation from God. And of course, any and all communication from God is revelation. But for instance, take Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, as as Ezekiel's prophecy begins in verse 1, Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kebar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw the visions of God. And as you go on reading verse 25, Ezekiel wrote, And there was a voice from the firmament, or from the heavens, that was over their heads when they stood and had let down their wings. So in other words, the event that takes place here, again, is very reminiscent of some of these scenes in the Old Testament. Ezekiel saw the heavens opened. He saw a vision, and he heard the voice of God. Now, in this case, the heavens opened, and what was seen was not a vision. Uh, What was seen is the Holy Spirit descending, coming from the heavens down to earth where Jesus is, and Matthew describes being like a dove fluttering down to rest upon Jesus. Now, if there's any question about what just happened here, the Spirit coming down and resting on Jesus, if there's any question about what has just happened here, it's entirely cleared up later by Peter. Acts chapter 10, verses 37 to 38. That word I say ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee, after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. What is happening here? God the Father is anointing Jesus Christ, his Son, with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was immersed in consecration and was anointed not by oil from the high priest, but rather was anointed with the Holy Spirit from the Father to enter into his new covenant priesthood where he would offer the perfect one-time sacrifice of himself and intercede for Israel that they might be saved. Of course, this is not for Israel only, but for all nations who will believe on him. Verse 17. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So then the voice of God speaks from heaven audibly so that it is heard and understood the son of god stood on the earth the spirit of god came from heaven from beyond the atmosphere of the earth and beyond the space where the sun and the moon and the stars are came to the earth 
and rested on the Son, and then the Father spoke from heaven and was heard on the earth. So this is a clear and definitive ending of the silence of revelation that had occurred since Malachi and the closing of the Old Testament. And notice what he declares, two things. This is my beloved son, and secondly, in whom I am well pleased. He declared that Jesus is his dearly loved son, echoing, of course, from the Old Testament places such as Psalm chapter 2 and verse number 7. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And, of course, the writer of Hebrews has a number of comments to make about those things applying to Jesus Christ. This is my beloved son, God says. And then he says, in whom I am well pleased. He expresses his pleasure in his son. And this, of course, echoing from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse number 1. God speaking, as it were, to Israel, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles, or to the nations. Well, Isaiah chapter 42 comes in this section of Isaiah's prophecy where one of the most prominent features of that particular part of Isaiah's prophecy is the denouncing of the idols. The, all these idols that the nations worshipped, and oftentimes Israel themselves became guilty of worshipping as well. All of these idols are denounced. And here in Isaiah chapter 42, the only image of God is declared. The only image of God is his son, Jesus Christ. All the way back to the Ten Commandments where he said that they were not to make any images, any graven images. They were not to bow down and they were not to serve them. Why? Because there is only one image of God. And that image is Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews also spoke about that as well. He is identified in Isaiah 42 as the elect or chosen servant of Yahweh. So when we put these two things together, we see that Jesus is here declared to be God's son, promised in places like Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14, and also the chosen servant of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 42 to bring judgment and salvation to the earth. Well, if you start reading in Isaiah uh, around about chapter 40 and you go through chapter 42 and to the, to the end where he has presented the servant of Yahweh here in Isaiah 42. If you follow along in Isaiah, you're going to see Yahweh's servant is depicted in humiliation, rejection by Israel, death by execution, exaltation, a returning king, a gatherer and restorer of Israel, 
establisher of God's kingdom on earth, as well as reigning over all Israel and all the nations. So when you see that conclusion, that last half of Isaiah, and you see what Matthew is connecting to, and think about Matthew and and the Gospels and, and the story of Jesus, as it were, as it unfolds, Matthew is clearly setting forth here that this Jesus of Nazareth, the one who walked this distance from Nazareth to the Jordan to be baptized by John, the one who was anointed with God's Spirit, is indeed this promised one, God's Son and His chosen servant to bring judgment and salvation to the earth. Now, before Jesus began his public ministry, he appeared here publicly to be consecrated to God, to be anointed by the Spirit, to enter into his full office as Messiah. When you think about the ending laments of the Old Testament, Israel was in exile, Jerusalem was not free, and the Messiah had not come. Well, those ending Old Testament laments, which is sort of the cliffhanger of the left side of the book, those ending Old Testament laments are being met right here with an unmistakable response from God from heaven. You know, one of the features that we have seen in the laments as we have been going through the Psalms is how how many times the, the lamenters are saying, are you going to remain silent? Are you going to keep still? Are you going to continue to, to not act in essence? And God has not kept silence, but God has spoken. And here he spoke of his son. And this, this was not the last time, but it was the first time in the life and ministry of Jesus And one thing that we need to realize is that this is still the good news today, just as it was then. Jesus has come. Jesus has made an end of sin and death and resurrection. And he is coming back. And he's coming back for judgment. He's coming back for salvation. And the good news is that all who believe in him, all who trust in him, will be saved and will dwell with him in his kingdom forever. And this is what Israel was being alerted to. This is what they were being notified of. God has broken his silence. God has responded to the laments and to the mournings and to the groanings and to the prayers and to the tears. Here he is. Here is my son in whom I am well pleased. All right, that's all of our message for this morning. We will close with a hymn.